0: Hey, it's Brandon, the host of Transform Your Workplace. This episode is sponsored by Ladder. Ladder was founded by LeBron James and Arnold Schwarzenegger to change the way supplements are made. They work with the top scientists to formulate a line of clean performance products. And unlike any other supplements, every batch is tested by a third party to verify the highest standards for quality and safety. And I know when I got my package from Ladder, I was blown away by the quality of the packaging. It felt really premium, and the taste was great too. I personally love the hydration packet, and I can't wait to try the other products too. Ladder's goal is to help you unlock your best in any situation. Right now, that means access to special offers and expert advice from their community. Use code BETTEREVERYDAY for 30% off everything site-wide at ladder.sport. That's better every day for 30% off at ladder.sport. This episode is also sponsored by RIMS. RIMS is a global organization dedicated to the profession of risk management. For nearly 60 years, RIMS has delivered the latest strategies and resources that allow risk professionals to grow, innovate, and succeed in any business. RIMS works with the industry leaders to produce content and online training that business professionals turn to. Topics include business continuity, cyber risk, risk management techniques, the fundamentals of insurance and more. There's also a private members only site where people can discuss sensitive issues and get honest answers. Members have been leaning on each other as we all navigate this global pandemic. If you're concerned about the safety of your employees and the sustainability of your organization, you need the resources and connections RIMS provides. Learn more at http colon forward slash forward slash go dot forward slash transform. You can save 25% off a year-long membership. And now, on to the show. Hey, it's Brandon Laws host of Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for tuning in and thanks for the download today. Hope you are well. Uh, Still uh, working from home as I'm sure most of you are. Uh, Things in Oregon are starting to kind of get back to normal a little bit. I see a light at the end of the tunnel, but nonetheless, still going to uh, probably just be safe uh, for the next couple months and and stick it out at home since I can. Um, Anyways, we've been delivering you a lot of coronavirus related content. And obviously we're dealing with other issues in in the nation right now. And we'll probably bring you more on that uh, later. I'm going to switch gears for today though, and get back to really the the core of this program, which is transforming your workplace. And uh, I had a conversation with Greg Ward. He is the author of the book, The Respectful Leader: Seven Ways to Influence Without Intimidation, and I had a lot of fun reading this book and having a conversation with Greg. This is, um, you know, it's much like a Patrick Lencioni type book. It's a, uh, it's written in a fable, which makes it really uh, uh, great uh, to conceptualize some of the ideas within the content. And then it's easy to to sort of relate to some of the characters. And it's like, oh, I know somebody like that. And I was like, oh, I don't want to be like that person. So I think you're going to get a lot from this uh, conversation. I know I really enjoyed uh, talking with Greg, uh, very articulate, and uh, he's just a great storyteller. So I think you're going to get a lot out of this. And uh anyways, enjoy the conversation and I'll talk to you soon. We got lots of great stuff coming up and can't wait to release it and share it with you. Thanks. Hey Greg, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Brandon. It is my pleasure. We're going to talk about your book, "The Respectful Leader: Seven Ways to Influence Without Intimidation." One of the best things about this book—it's a fable. I love it. What made you to decide to write a fable rather than just you know a typical nonfiction book that you know most people write? Well,
1: I am actually a trained writer actor, director, and producer in theater and film. And I have been doing that work since I was in my teens. So one way or another, I have become a storyteller. My father was a sports writer and he was a storyteller. And as I look around the literature of all the leadership books out there, I found that the ones that resonated the most and had a huge impact with people in a positive way were business fables. And they are engaging, and they're fun to read, and you learn something even though you don't necessarily think you're learning while you're reading, and you enjoy the story for the story's sake. And so it was very natural for me, having done this work for about, gosh, 25 years one way or another in terms of leadership development, to write a story that would be about the people that I've worked with over many years, big companies, little companies, federal government, you name it, and create characters that are very, what I hope to be, considered realistic. And a storyline that's realistic. And so I just thought, let me just tell a cracking good story and see how Hmm. that goes. And so far, knock on wood, it's
0: gone really well. That's what I want to say is that what drives me nuts about some of the fables that are out there is the dialogue doesn't seem very realistic. Yeah, the principles make sense in the story format. But like when you don't have a dialogue that might actually be real, I think that's where it stops with me and where I might lose interest. But yours, it's great storytelling, the characters, you kind of sort of understand who they are. And it seems like they're almost based on real people. And probably are based on years of experience in dealing with leaders and other employees i mean did you put a lot of what you've learned over the years into some of these characters
1: yes and in fact there are a couple of characters like the lead character the new ceo of the company des, des that's right and the maintenance lady grace and speck the head of r&d Those characters are based on at least a few of people that I've known over the course of many years of doing this work. Grace is definitely based on someone who mentored me for many, many years. And I will never reveal her name to the public, but she's (laughs) an awesome human being. And she's very much like Grace. There's just no baloney with her. She's very respectful, she's very direct and clear. And I love her for it. And she's just amazing. And Des, to be honest with you, he is like a lot of young guys who get thrust into positions of authority, not necessarily before it's time, but in ways they'd never experienced before. So they're kind of flailing about and they're looking for their leaders to give them some guidance. And sometimes Mm -hmm. they choose the wrong leaders to guide them. And in a way, almost every one of the major characters is based on somebody I know. And perhaps with a few of other qualities coming from other people as well.
0: It's interesting that you pointed out that, you know, a lot of newer, younger leaders will come in like Desi came into becoming a new CEO. And he's looking to his leader, Chuck, who's at the I think is a parent company. I can't remember the name of that company, but he's looking to him for mentorship and guidance. But he's sort of this authoritarian leader who's edgy and disrespectful at times. And I think to your point that you're making, it's like, that's probably not a good mentor to have, right? No, It's just the old way of leading.
1: It's not a good way of leading, especially in today's business cultures. It just doesn't work anymore. There was a time where Chuck's style, which is known as command and control and carrot and stick, those two leadership styles are super common in many organizations. The problem is that Our research tells us that roughly 80 to 90% of us find both of those leadership styles to be disrespectful when lives are not at stake. It's one thing if we're in the middle of a firefight and we're in the military and we can't just stand around and say, Brandon, what are your thoughts on this? How do you see this uh, challenge for us? No, somebody has to take control. It's the same with the police. I used to be a trainer for the New York City Police Department. It's the same thing. So command and control works in certain situations, life and death situations. But most of us, when it's not life and death, we find that command and control style to be uh, disrespectful, off-putting. It actually demotivates us rather than motivates us. But that's what Chuck was raised with, That's that character. That's how he was successful, how he became CEO of a mega corporation. So his attitude is, hey, this got me all the way to where I am, so why should I change now?
0: And it doesn't work for Dez at all. Yeah, and that's pretty clear. You actually wrote early on in the book, I think it was before the fable actually starts in in the introduction, you said that it's unlikely we're ever going to go back to the days where high-profile business leaders who've been engaging in disrespectful and inappropriate behavior is going to be given leave to continue or when caught, allowed to quietly retire with a golden parachute. Why do you believe that is no longer going to be the case in the future?
1: Well... I must admit, I was being a bit overly optimistic when I wrote that. I see how the research is now bearing out that there are many cultures that still operate that way and are, on paper at least, successful. So I'm going to herewith publicly revise that statement to say that it would be a very positive development. If the days of command and control carrot and stick leadership are gone, I think, though, we are seeing more and more leaders saying to themselves, whoa, this kind of leadership is actually pretty negative. And we're seeing more and more data that shows how expensive disrespectful leadership can be. And that is the convincer, I think, that I'm at least having more and more luck and traction with senior leadership, when I point to all the data that clearly shows that command and control leadership in non-urgent, non-life-threatening situations is actually very harmful and very costly.
0: Yeah. And the costly part, I think over time, what's going to happen, and this is just my opinion, but I think as CEOs and leaders are disrespectful, it bleeds into the culture. And just the way information flows nowadays, we got social media, people talk more, people just you know, they want to be tied to a good culture, a good mission purpose. And I think when you work for somebody who, you know, isn't respectful, doesn't have your like best of intentions at heart, like I think that people are more likely to leave and then that will cost the company and revenue downstream. I think it'll eventually work itself out.
1: Well, there are direct and indirect costs to disrespect. A direct cost would be a complaint to HR where they have to get involved, do an investigation, perhaps a disciplinary action of some kind. But the indirect costs are actually twice as much as the direct costs. What our research is showing that, let's say, Brandon, you get fed up with your employer. You just find it to be a toxic workplace. And you decide, despite what's going on in the economy right now, because we can understand everybody is either out of a job or at least saying, I'm just going to stay with what I got because a job is better than no job. But at the end of the day, if you're feeling like your culture is so disrespectful, That you just can't stand it anymore and you need to be somewhere else. Well, you leave, you take your intellectual property, your knowledge, your experience with you, potentially to a competitor. And then the more indirect cost is the the company you've left has got to put out a recruiting notice, uh, interview people. And what about all the time lost by your team while you're gone? And that role goes unfilled. So that's just a short list of some of the expenses. On top of that is, how disrespect and respect, but disrespect can be very contagious. For example, if you leave, you're likely to tell some of your colleagues why you're leaving, your trusted colleagues. So they're going to be looking at the culture themselves through their own set of filters and going, whoa, he left for, because of this. Maybe I need to leave too. So the knock on effect from disrespect is really, really costly. There's one more I wanted to point out. Did you know that 80% of us, 80% of us, If we feel disrespected at work by a colleague, a boss, a customer, or a vendor, we'll actually spend time ruminating on what happened. And 60% of us will actually lose our loyalty to our organization. We'll notice a significant dip in loyalty to the actual organization we're working for. So I'm sorry, we can't afford that. As leaders, we just cannot afford people losing loyalty, people ruminating and worrying about, roughly half of us will actually spend time trying to avoid the person who disrespected us. That can't be good for business and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of expenses involved that leaders who are tough guys, you know, said, you know, I let's tough it through. Everybody's too soft. Everybody's too thin skinned Well, you know what? It's too expensive, just too expensive to continue on in this way.
0: Let's dive into the fable itself. I think this is a great story of a transformation of an organization, of a CEO. So Des comes in as CEO. I don't know his age. I assume he's a younger CEO, maybe 40, something like that. He's actually in his late 30s, early 40s. I I deliberately left it kind of amorphous. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So he's really coming into this organization, trying to turn things around. The success of the organization seems to be relying on building this prototype for a very important client, must be their biggest client. What does Des learn about the entire situation that he's coming into? The the status of the project, the leadership team, the work environment, like maybe set the stage for us. Sure.
1: When he comes in,
0: he's actually been tapped.
1: He was in another role, he's never been in a CEO role in the mega corporation that Chuck runs. And Chuck had installed previously in this company, a pair of leaders who just basically failed. And in addition, what happened is they created an environment of disrespect and toxicity that kind of poisoned everybody at the organization. It's a medical device design and manufacturing organization. And by the way, I live in San Diego. We've got a ton of these kinds of medical device companies here in San Diego. And that's why I chose to set it in that kind of company and I've had them as clients. I kind of know that world. And so he walks into what I call an already exploded situation where the conglomerate has uh, summarily dismissed the two top leaders that they installed barely a year before. They brought Uh, Des in really without any kind of preparation, he gets thrown into the job and he realizes that everybody's basically at each other's throats. Everybody's pointing fingers at each other. And the one team that is really the thing that's going to keep the doors open is the research and development team who have been working on this device for their biggest client. You're absolutely right. And that team is led by a very super smart engineer who has no emotional intelligence whatsoever. Spec. Spec. His yep, (laughs) the character spec. And that's his nickname. It's a derivation of specification. And he's always about the numbers and the specs when it comes to the technology. But when it comes to people, he has the emotional intelligence of a gnat. And so he just makes everybody's lives more difficult because. He's so demanding. He's so controlling. And he knows that without him and his team, this company is going belly up. So he kind of feels like he can just let it all hang out and treat people any way he wants to treat them and blame others for the problems they're having rather than taking responsibility for how his own behavior is impacting everyone in the organization. And unfortunately, Spec kind of knows his game if he wants it, and he doesn't care. He's just going to do what he's going to do. And so it's very, very destructive what Des walks into.
0: And when Des walks in, I think, wasn't the leadership team was having a meeting? And, and Spec and Janet, I believe, they had a big blow up. And, and yeah. so Des is sort of in the middle of that. And he didn't even know it was coming. All he knew is he walked down the hall for his
1: very first meeting with his leadership team. And outside, he hears them yelling at each other. And Speck and Janet, who is the head of recruiting and human resources, is, they're literally leaning across the table yelling at each other. Speck is demanding that she hire more engineers. And she's yelling right back at him, saying, we can't keep any engineers and we don't have any budget for any more engineers because of the way you behave. And so it's a face-off that Des had no idea was going on. And he tries to get them all to calm down, and instead it just blows up. Janet stops talking to Speck on Dez's advice, which is just not good advice. And eventually she just throws up her hands, and within a matter of weeks she walks out and threatens them with a lawsuit for sexual harassment and you name it. So it's an absolute mess that Dez has walked into, and Speck is absolutely refusing to take a responsibility for his behavior. And then we've got a couple of other characters, like the poor head of IT. He's a really nice guy, but he just feels so overwhelmed by the characters in the organization that he just keeps his head down, doesn't say much and do much of anything, but do his best on his job, but he's not really contributing to the overall forward momentum of the team. And the marketing guy, he too is a bit overwhelmed by everything, and he's been given many hats to wear and clearly he's out of his depth. So that's what Des walked into. (laughs) Pretty scary stuff for anybody, especially a brand new CEO. Yeah.
0: And I think what's fascinating is as the pages kind of go on and the story evolves, Des sort of perpetuates that he walks into the situation and he has the command control type leadership style. He's disrespectful. I mean, there's even interactions with he and his wife and his daughter over the phone while he's at work. And in the level of disrespect he shows them too, it just kind of illustrates the point that Dez is no different than all these other leaders. And there was one particular interaction where I thought was the turning point. And you probably carefully put this in there, but Dez interacts with Grace. She's the building maintenance employee and she must have overheard something, but he was fired up about what would probably just happen. And Dez said something to the effect of, I'm your boss, damn it. And Grace is like, so? That doesn't give you the right to disrespect me. And I think that point alone was worth the whole book because it shows that regardless of the level that you're at, we need to show respect to all people at all levels. Exactly. You're absolutely right. I
1: needed Des to get hit literally up the side of the head with a two by four in order to start to see how his behavior was actually making things worse. And what our work and research has been doing over the past 25 years is we've found that when leaders, you know, not bad intention people, we're not talking about sociopaths. We're talking about people who are stuck in situations where they revert to their childhood conflict resolution techniques, which is yelling, screaming, kicking your feet, trying to bully other people into getting your way, etc. Many of us did this when we were kids. The reality is that only when we get hit hard and hit between the eyes will we wake up to our own failings and to our own behaviors, which are causing so much trouble. And so Grace really is Angel who hits him hard up the side of the head. He doesn't realize it until much later on. But that moment where he says, you can't talk to me that way. I'm your boss. And she says, so you can't disrespect me. And she has a very interesting place of personal power. Very few of us are willing to stand up to our bosses, mostly because we believe that they hold our careers and therefore our livelihoods in the palm of their hand and they can dismiss us on a whim. And Grace's attitude is, well, if you keep treating me with disrespect, I'll just quit and find a job somewhere else. And that's a very powerful place to be. And it allows her to speak truth to power in a way which many of us don't have that option. And so I really wanted Grace to be that kind of person who is very direct, very blunt, but also respectful in a way that we can say, yeah, I can do that. I may not have a lot of power and control, but I can speak truth to power in a respectful way and I can make a positive difference with my boss if I do it right. And that's essentially what she helps Dez to learn throughout the course of their time together.
0: Unfortunately, he doesn't quite make the transformation right away. One of the most powerful points he made in the book was not to fight disrespect with more disrespect. And in particular, with this story, Chuck and Dez have a huge blow up where I think Chuck nearly almost fired Dez or Dez is about ready to walk out. Their emotions were so heated. What more could you say about that point in particular, about the fighting disrespect with more disrespect in in that situation?
1: I think we've all been in a situation where we've been treated in ways that we think are disrespectful. And what happens in our brains, there's a little bit of neuroscience here. What happens is we get triggered. Our primitive brains, what's called our reptilian brains, perceive disrespect as a threat. And we either go into fight or flight, or freeze mode. And so what Chuck and Dez do when they come to their big blow up and Dez threatens to quit and Chuck threatens to fire him is essentially they're not operating from any logical, rational part Mm, of their brain.
0: They're like children.
1: They're like children. And so what Grace does, if you remember, she sets off the fire alarm in the building, which is kind of a big no-no, but it was a metaphor for everybody To realize walk away. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Walk away. Take a moment, take a breath, walk away. And she gets Des to do that. And, you know, albeit in a, a very extreme way to stop him from quitting. And when we take a moment to step back from someone else's disrespect, it's not a sign of weakness, it's actually a sign of maturity and thoughtfulness. I mean, how many of us have been cut off on the freeway and have really been tempted to want to drive up next to the person and flip them the bird? Oh, uh, totally. Most of us, most of us have. But we don't necessarily do it because the rational parts of our brain kick in. We think, okay, maybe that person is a very aggressive person and they might do something even worse to me. Who knows? Pull out a gun. I don't know. Yep. That's a rational thought. Another rational thought is that I like to take on board is maybe that person is having some kind of emergency and they really need to get somewhere fast. Now, that's me being very positive. That's me giving them the benefit of the doubt. But I will never forget a number of years ago, quite a few years ago, I was driving on the freeway. And previous to that, when people had cut me off, I would get pissed off and I'd say some foul languages and I might even flip them a bird. And then one day I got a call from my now ex-wife who said, our son's been hurt at school. He's in the emergency room. Can you get over there?
0: Mm, and how fast and do you think I drove? Oh, you're, you're going way over the speed limit. <laughs> oh, to get man. There.
1: I probably hit 100 miles an hour. Ooh. I'm certain a lot of people thought I was, you know, a jerk. and Sociopath. Sociopath, <laughs> you name it. And I was putting everybody at risk, but all I could think about is I need to get to the hospital to get to my son as quickly as I possibly can. So you know what? These days I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. And even if I'm wrong, I don't know that. And B, more importantly, it keeps me calm and it doesn't have me do things that I would regret going forward, like acting like a little child. So that's one of the primary reasons I say that we shouldn't try to fight disrespect with more disrespect because it just escalates the problem. It just raises the level of conflict uh, to something that when we do cool down, we might regret.
0: So after that blow up that Chuck and Dez had, they had a chance to come back, calmly talk it out. I think Dez took a couple of weeks off. The teams decided to rally and hopefully get that prototype done. So Dez comes back and you think he really wants to make some changes. So he's making changes about the respectful environment, treating people at all levels with respect. Speck is the one character that was fascinating to me because he seems like he's making changes for a little while. And then he reverts back to his days of command and control, bullying to get his way, and just acts in a disrespectful way. And Dez does the right thing. And I think puts him on a performance improvement plan, probably documents everything, and then ultimately has to let him go because he didn't change his ways. And I wanted to ask you just about that in particular, because I know you've probably dealt with this in your years of coaching and all of that is, how long do we hold on to somebody like that who's a super high performer, but is not bought into changing and being respectful.
1: I am so glad you asked me about that because I struggled with Dez's decision to let Spec go. I struggled with it because Spec, in many ways, did help save the company, and because of his, you know, sheer brilliance, his technical skills and knowledge. But at the end of the day. Those subject matter expertise skills, when you rise into a level of leadership, they are important, but they aren't necessarily as important as your ability to lead the team effectively. And SPEC had done, which we see often, is they get through a crisis, they become the hero for solving the crisis, and there's this sense of, oh, well, I'm protected, I'm the hero, I do what I do, and they still keep me on board. And because basically I'm I'm the rainmaker hmm. and we see this over and over and over again, where leadership keeps on board someone who's a top rainmaker, but who is also a toxic personality. So I finally determined that that message needs to be sent home to my readers. They need to understand. I once had a top engineer in a huge company, a technology company say to me, no matter what, we can't fire our smartest people and the ones who are designing and creating our products. And I said, okay, so that means you give them carte blanche. You're saying loud and clear, that's okay. However they behave, no matter how much they offend people, no matter how many people leave revolving door, no matter how much trouble HR has had to deal with because this person, you're okay with that because they're bringing in the bacon. If that's what you're saying, then don't be surprised if this thing blows up in your face and becomes a massive lawsuit. And we can point to any number of companies that have had this happen to them, where the company's entire well-being has been put at risk because leadership failed to do the right
0: thing. Well, I think of like the Me Too movement too. And I don't know if you ever got a chance to watch The Morning Show. With Steve Carell and Jennifer Aniston on Apple TV or Apple Plus, whatever it is. And, you know, it's probably loosely based on some real characters. I thought that was interesting because it's exactly the point you're making is like somebody who, you know, is the show or brings in all the revenue or is the talent or whatever it may be. But they can get away with acting like a complete a-hole and disrespecting or harassing or whatever, and it just slowly destroys the culture. And yep, then absolutely. everybody else behaves that same way because they're like, well, if that's rewarded, I'm going to act like this too. That's exactly right. And so fortunately, Dez in the book
1: realizes that he's given Spec every opportunity and, and in fact, probably bent over backwards for him to change. And uh, Spec just couldn't do it. And in the final meeting where Des let him go, uh, Speck was furious, Speck was angry, he felt betrayed, threatened lawsuits and all this kind of stuff. And so one wonders if someone had taken Speck aside much earlier in his career where he might have not had so much experience under his belt being a jerk. And really, like Grace did with Des, smacked him up the side of the head and said, dude, it's great that you're brilliant, but you keep treating people like this. You're going to hurt yourself and you're going to hurt your career. Is that what you want for the rest of your life? Some people will get that message. Unfortunately, many people will not. And so they'll be thrust out. Unfortunately, what we tend to do is we give them nice big golden parachutes and they have this level of chip on their shoulder of, I was fired because people are too sensitive. And so those folks are never, ever going to learn unless they have the grace of a grace in their lives who will take them to task for who they are. I was very fortunate, by the way, when I first started my company in 1997, one of my employees took me aside and hit me between the eyes about the way I was being disrespectful. And I didn't even realize it. Oh, wow. And it was, a, he had the courage. And I always have thanked him for that courage. I'm not a bad person. I just was insensitive to my employees' perceptions of how I felt about them. And so he told me about it and in no uncertain terms. He woke me up and I'm forever grateful. So, in a way, I recreated that through grace.
0: And with the transformation that does went through, either you know personally as a leader and then the organization, what are some of those regular respect practices that you encourage? You know, at the end of the book, but also throughout the story, that where the transformation actually happened. What are, what are some of your favorites? Well, I call them respectful dues, and the first
1: two are my favorites. Well, they're all my favorites, but <laughs> of I, course, I like taking a child. Exactly. The first two are what I consider the easiest to do. The first one, the first respect we'll do is called be the first to respect. So what that means is don't assume just because you're the leader that people should automatically respect you. Instead, offer respect to other people first, such as saying, good morning and hello, how are you? And doing that in a genuine, respectful and decent, caring manner. It's not hard. It actually pays enormous dividends. And why not? There's nothing wrong with being the first to respect unfortunately, what some leaders believe is that respect has to be earned and that their teams have to earn the leadership's respect. Well, I would put it the other way around. The leader has to earn the respect of their team. And once you have the respect of your team, they will jump through hoops for you and be extraordinarily resilient and loyal and go the extra mile when the going gets tough. But if you don't have the respect of your team, they will not perform and they will bail on you and you'll be left on your own. That's one of them. The second one is uh, practicing regular respect. Regular respect is the stuff we learned as kids, like saying please and thank you and I appreciate you and the work you're doing and just being a decent, caring human being on occasion. That's number two. I just wanna bring up respectful do number five is get your shift together. And I'm talking about emotional shift, where if you're a leader, chances are, People are coming to you all the time with problems and issues, and you're going to have naturally emotional reactions to those problems and issues. The problem is that that your emotional reaction is perceived and escalated by others around you. And so the old saying is that don't shoot the messenger. Well, not only should you not shoot the messenger of bad news, but you should try to manage your emotional shift, what's going on emotionally with you whenever you get it. And there's lots of different ways to do that. But you need to be aware of how your negative emotions can impact others. And so you have to get your shift together.
0: Greg, I love this conversation. I mean, the book is great. It's a quick, easy read for anybody who wants to pick it up and check it out. It's 130 pages. Got a great story, great messages, and amazing tips at the end, too. You touched on a few of them here at the end, but there's just jam-packed with ideas. So I want to encourage people to go check that out. Greg, you're up to some new things since we first booked this interview. Tell people about that. Sure. Thank you for asking.
1: I have, since the book was released, keep getting folks wanting more, wanting to learn more about respect, wanting to have and be a part of a community of respectful leaders. And so last December of 2019, I and my team founded a nonprofit that we call the Center for Respectful Leadership. And the focus of the Center for Respectful Leadership is continuing research in the area of respect and respectful leadership to generate public dialogues and to provide learning and development and coaching opportunities to anyone who is interested in this wonderful world of respect. And we are launching a number of different services and coaching practices and training programs virtually and online, instructor-led. And if you go to respectfulleadership.org, you'll find the Center for Respectful Leadership.
0: My guest today has been Greg Ward, the author of The Respectful Leader, Seven Ways to Influence Without Intimidation at Business Fable. Greg, been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure.